Hi again, everybody. This is Stuart Gandalf. Happy to have you to yet another one of our podcasts. Um, today, I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Hassan Teda, who is a U.S. Navy captain and associate professor of surgery at the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences and an adjunct faculty of Howard University College of Medicine. He was a Robert Wood Johnson Health Policy Fellow from 2012 to 2013, assigned to U.S. Congress Congressional Budget Office. Um, currently, uh, Dr. Teda is a thoracic surgeon for MedStar Health and Walter Reed National uh, Military Medical Center. He leads a specialized thoracic adaptive recovery team in Washington, D.C., and his research in uh, thoracic transplantation aims to expand heart and lung recovery and save lives. Dr. Teda, welcome, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Stuart. Uh, we're just talking about your really uh, unique practice offline, and you certainly as a transplant surgeon are on the go, uh, particularly these days during COVID, and uh, we're just talking about recoveries and some of the things that are going on. But you're also a passionate author, and I know that this is your third book, and I was referred to you by a trusted friend, and our loyal listeners will know that we do a lot with uh, patient experience, and it's kind of one of our things we like to support. And I often tell people, look, I don't want to be a clinician. I enjoy it, love what I do. Um, but if I can do anything to help, you know, uh, people get better care and particularly for whatever reason, patient experience is a common, uh, an empathy or something that I feel like, you know, something I can help endorse and help promote. And, um, you know, this is square in your uh, area. So I'm glad to meet you and have you on our web or podcast for the first time. Um, you've done a number of books. This is your third one. And I'd like to start off by talking about this one is The Art of Human Care and talk about maybe just, you know, a couple of background of your other couple of books and then focus in on this one and, you know, why now and why is it different? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so writing has been a passion of mine, as, as you said. Uh, my dad told me a long time ago when I was probably just an adolescent that he said, uh, what a best ways to ensure that you could live forever uh, is to write a book. And uh, I guess it's something I internalize. And I think many people have different reasons for wanting to write a book. And so I've always wanted to be an author. In fact, uh, very early in my childhood, I actually wrote a book uh, for a young authors festival that I sort of resurrected a few years ago uh, when I had an opportunity to do a TED talk. And so that was, that was neat to kind of bring that book back to life. It was something I did in the 1980s for your listeners. So it was a while ago. And then uh, when I got back from a very difficult and challenging deployment uh, as part of my military work uh, in Afghanistan, supporting the Marines, I found myself in a very uh, you know, tough spot, you know, dealing with uh, many of the challenges I faced out there. And one of the outlets that I have always had is journaling and writing. And, and uh, I certainly did a lot of reading while I was uh, in Afghanistan. And when I came back to the States, I found uh, my outlet in writing and it was very cathartic to sort of uh, uh, write about my experience. And I had a unique opportunity to work with publisher to uh, craft the fiction. And so that was, a, that was a really neat book. And I got a lot of uh, good uh, recognition for it. And I think it helped a lot of people out, but uh, certainly helped me out writing about that experience and putting uh, pen to paper and creating a story that, that helped me reconcile much of what I experienced as a, as a, as a you know, combat trauma surgeon. And uh, it was a way to, to help uh, me transition back into the real world, so to speak. Uh, 
So this book, uh, The Art of Human Care, I will have to say it has been a work in progress for many, many years, actually. Uh, it uh, is a labor of love and it has been a labor of love, was a labor of love and, and one that, um, you know, I was very intentional about uh, writing and uh, wanted to make sure that it was uh, going to be a book that uh, would relate to many people, uh, whether you were in healthcare or not. And uh, if you uh, look at the cover of the book, it says The Art of Human Care. Uh, it has a scalpel and it has a, a paintbrush. Uh, there's some meaning to that. Uh, but perhaps most importantly, uh, uh, besides my name, right beside it, it says With Ella Blue. Uh, and so this was a project that I got to work on with my daughter. My daughter is Ella Blue. Uh, she is a, uh, an artist, at least in my eye. And, uh, and it was very neat to work on a project with her. So I'd like to tell potential readers and folks that may be interested in, in uh, picking up the book that it has pictures in it. And, and so that makes it a quite an easy read, uh, intentionally written to be brief and something that you could finish in, uh, you know, one sitting or two. Uh, but with the pictures, I, I hope to uh, evoke a lot of emotion. And uh, hopefully, uh, since you had a chance to read it, I, I hope uh, it was something that, that touched you by the stories and the art and, and sort of the message within. I loved it actually, and that was—it's um, quite a read. And like you said, it was an easy read, um, and it was a touching read. And there were some really good anecdotes we can talk about. One of the questions I have about the book, because again, as I said a moment ago, it's very entertaining and it's very sort of rich and emotional. But I was really could not help but keep thinking: Who did you write this book for? The the intended audience, because it felt like a physician physician colleague to colleague, or maybe it's them plus additional sort of healthcare professionals or the lay public. Who were you thinking about when you wrote this book? Yeah, that's a good question. So I would say that it, it the intent is really for the general public, for sure. And when I sort of uh, began to craft the framework of what the art of human care was all about, the uh, basis for it was inspired by a speech that I delivered to the incoming class uh, for uh, medical students of uh, 2018. So this was a while back. Uh, I was invited to be the white coat ceremony speaker. Uh, so for those of those in, in healthcare, uh, that's a, a pretty, um, uh, I think, rich landmark for students and the new uh, newly entered uh, folks that are going to be indoctrinated into healthcare. And what happens is uh, they get to get their white coat, and typically they get a very seasoned usually gray-haired professional to speak about <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the world of medicine. And so here I was being invited by my alma mater to do just that. Uh, not only was I honored, I was very humbled and, and, and uh, absolutely uh, thrilled to be uh, bestowed this great uh, responsibility. And I really wanted to inspire the students because I, I thought that, you know, this would be uh, one moment in time that hopefully they reflect back on it. And this could be the beginning, or this was the beginning officially of their medical careers. Uh, so initially, the beginning of the book highlights that, uh, you know, that, that experience. And so there is, uh, I think, uh, you know, some hint that, that that is the intended audience. But you'll see that one of the things that I try to do for the students, as well as for the reader, is humanize health, care, uh, and in fact, uh, you know, argue or or propose, if you will, that uh, healthcare is is quite different than human care. 
Uh, and so the again the the title was very intentional. The stories are very intentional, and the goal and the objective is to write for an audience um, and for those that at any time in their life uh, both have been human and uh, care for others or received care. And so in that way, it really is a large audience that uh, the book is intended to touch and, and hopefully resonate with. Outstanding. So that was one of my questions I wanted to ask you. So I thought that was really interesting, the idea of human care versus healthcare. Why don't you expand upon that and explain what you mean by human care? Yeah. So. I, I, I relate in the story uh, an experience that I had well before I was a physician, well before I was in medical school. In fact, I was in undergrad. And during that time in undergrad as a junior, uh, aspiring to be a physician, I was a biochem major, I had a unique opportunity to have an early decision um, interview for Johns Hopkins Medical School as a junior. This was a, a huge honor because I was able to visit the school as a candidate and be potentially accepted well before my senior year even began and, and, and would not have to be burdened with a lot of uh, uh, the MCATs and things like that, some of the testing. This was based mainly on my um, academic record to that point, my desire and to be a physician and the recommendation. So, it was, it was a huge honor. So I flew down to uh, Baltimore. I was going to school in upstate New York at a small arts and science college at the time. And, uh, you know, had a what I thought was the best interview. And I thought they loved me. And I was all prepared to, uh, you know, receive a acceptance letter in the mail in, in the few days after returning uh, to my campus. Uh, but what happened instead was uh, I didn't quite get the letter. Uh, uh, but instead, I, I started to experience uh, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, illness, and I was sick. and And uh, over the ensuing days, uh, a week or so after I came back from uh, this trip, I found myself with a fever, the worst headache in my life, stiff neck, and uh, and fevers, and uh, not feeling well. And I went to the infirmary. Uh, fortunately. Uh, even though they misdiagnosed me with what I actually had, they did give me something that potentially, you know, helped to prolong my life uh, for a little bit until the time when I was found hours later in my dorm room late at night on a weekend, uh, pretty much unresponsive. And uh, ultimately what happened, I'll sort of fast forward, but I, I was uh, taken to the hospital and I was diagnosed with bacterial meningitis. Now, if, if you know anything about uh, bacterial meningitis and if your audience has ever been, um, you know, unfortunate to experience that, whether by a loved one or themselves, it's a, quite a lethal condition. And I was fortunate to survive that. Uh, and I believe at the time, uh, not only were the doctors and the healthcare professionals that administered care to me uh, at, the, uh, at the hospital there, uh, not delivering good health care, but they delivered human care. What do I mean by that? Well, this one doctor that I recall uh, being my sort of attending physician was an ER doctor, and he was the one that sort of made the diagnosis, which, which wasn't really intuitive. If you think about a college student coming into a college town hospital on a weekend with his two fraternity brothers, and he's sort of unresponsive and looking a little lethargic, you know, the default there is like, oh, he must have been drinking or something. And, and they insisted that that was not the case. In fact, that was not anything I really indulged in as an undergrad. And so, um, you know, that that um, 
that empathy from the doctor was 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 one that was not lost on me. But more importantly, he he must have taken time because I was out totally out of it. He must have taken time to really get a good detailed history about what was going on with me from my friends. Um, and although I spent about two weeks in the hospital and uh, uh, two of those weeks actually in the ICU and a little bit more in the hospital, I recall this doctor that had that uh, initially cared for me in the ER coming up to see me as I was recovering uh, on the uh, regular wars. I had been transferred outside the ICU. I was just maybe a day or so from uh, departing the hospital. And he came up to see me. And he came up to see me, and he was carrying this uh, large textbook. It was called Harrison's. And Harrison's is the uh, sort of Bible of internal medicine. And uh, he came up and said, hey, Hassan, I, I'm glad you're doing better. And uh, your friends told me that you wanted to be a doctor. So I wanted to come here and share with you what you had. And, you know, that's an amazing story. And that doesn't sound like much, but I don't know how many people have ever had an ER doctor come visit them, you know, a couple of weeks after they've been admitted to the hospital. So the fact that he kept tabs on me and was so concerned that he wanted to come and see how I was doing and then more importantly, have a conversation with me and then bring me something that he knew would be of interest to me because he learned that I was going to be a doctor. That to me embodied a lot of the elements of what I espouse here of human care. And and what was really neat was this. He he shared with me what I had uh, uh, in terms of uh, the disease, and I read about it, and I realized, wow, we really was fortunate to live. And then at the end, he said, I have a little bit of a test for you. He said, uh, listen, uh, you want to be a doctor, right? And I said, yeah, I do. He said, all right, have a test. He said, what's two plus two? And I said, well, it must be some kind of trick here, but I said, that's four. And he looked at me, and he said, you're going to make an excellent doctor. And that was something that I'll never forget. I mean, I'm relating the story to you, but that happened decades ago. And it was absolutely what I needed because shortly after discharge from the hospital, uh, this was well before the age of internet and, and sort of emails and things like that. I went, I went uh, back to my dorm to find a big fat rejection letter from Johns Hopkins. <laughs> but, oh, <no. laughs> but I, but, but I was not, but I was not, uh, I was not, uh, I was not dissuaded from from still pursuing medicine because uh, the doctor that took care of me in the hospital told me that I passed the test and I was going to make an excellent doctor. So I persisted and I, 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 I persevered, and ultimately uh, I did go to med school and and uh, you know. Uh, wind up uh, doing a lot more. But that's, that's the element of human care where it takes, where, where, where you, you think about all of us in this world being humans. And, uh, you know, we in some way, uh, and hopefully in many ways, uh, take care of each other. Now, we certainly do that with our family and our friends, but sometimes it, it can be just the care or just the interest that you take in a fellow human and, and sometimes even a stranger that can make all the difference in the world. And by doing so, you really, you know, impact uh, the world in a, in a very, you know, very powerful way. Uh, and, and that's like what I like to, you know, sort of convey in this in human care. Now, there's stories throughout the book that, that bring to light many examples of what I'm sharing with you here. But that's just one of many. That's great. And, you know, it's funny. I, you mentioned about I ask you about your audience and the audience of our podcast includes a whole bunch of people, right? It includes people that are very interested in patient experience. Uh, most of it's people who do work in and around healthcare. I don't know if we have too many lay people that are completely outside of it, but you know, we have hospital executives and 
uh, marketing people and doctors and clinicians and you know experts in their own field and pharma and all kinds of different areas. But I think that what you touched on there a moment ago was the whole idea of empathy and um, being more than just a cold clinician. And you know, again, when you're doing transplants, is kind of at the height of at least I would think pretty close to the height of you know technical expertise required. But you're still bringing that human experience to it every day. And you know, most of the doctors we work with when we're working with them are like that. Right? There are you know the sort of the classic clinician only. I don't care if they like me. I just want them to get better kind of attitude. But um, there are certainly today, there's a tsunami of change. And I think that's what makes this such an exciting uh, part of what we do with our company and our agency is just give people that, you know, are smart people a voice to help reinforce that message. And I think that story is really touching for sure. One of the things that I noticed in your book as well, um, you talked about the mind-body connection, particularly the part about how that helped you survive. And that's, you know, seems, you know, unusual for at least some of the surgeons I know. Tell me what your thoughts are about the mind-body connection. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'll use that story again as sort of an anchor to sort of convey and maybe highlight and illustrate what I mean by that. So here I was, uh, you know, a young, invincible adolescent, just came back from the interview of a lifetime and uh, was pretty convinced I was going to be a doctor. I just interviewed at Johns Hopkins for for goodness sakes. And here I was now with uh, what should have been a lethal infection and something that could have quite frankly taken me out. Now, I don't recall a lot of what happened, particularly in the early stages of that uh, hospitalization and that experience. I do remember a tube in every orifice of the body. I remember, you know, people trying to keep me awake and aroused while I was sort of in and out of it. Uh, but the one thing I do remember with uh, with great uh, vivid recall is the fact that I was going to be a doctor. I had this sort of purpose. You know, I, I had been working on this for years. I was, like I said, a biochem major. I just went on this interview. And even though I was sort of in this, uh, you know, almost dreamlike state uh, while I was in the hospital, I kept thinking there was something that I had to live for. There was something that, you know, was... Uh, pulling me toward recovery and getting better. And, and certainly uh, when, when I was, uh, you know, sort of emerging from the illness and sort of the, uh, the serious part of that, uh, it was, it was the, the work of the doctor and, 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 the, and the swell test and the little interaction that I had with him that helped to propel me out of the hospital with this enthusiasm that I was going to do well no matter what happened, and, and including a rejection letter. But nonetheless, the whole time that I was in the hospital, I, I kept feeling like there was a reason why I had to stay alive. And that was something that was internally uh, ingrained in me at that stage. And so when I became you know, uh, a medical student and then certainly started to engage and interact with patients, I recognized something that was really interesting. Uh, and that was the patients that I could find uh, that had something to live for, whether it was a family, whether it was a job, whether it was a hobby, uh, a, a cause, they seemed to be able to overcome some of the most insurmountable challenges from a healthcare standpoint, and, and almost did so uh, irregardless of what we did to them as healthcare professionals, you know, in terms of surgery and treatments and things like that. One of the most important and powerful drivers for someone recovering was what it was that they were going to do when they recovered. You know, and I and I became very attuned to this, and I started to ask 
my patients, especially when I became sort of the attending surgeon and the one that was entrusted with the care of my surgical patients, I always tried to find what it was that and what, what, what it was that was important to them. Because I knew that if I could get them to even think about that, I would just notice anecdotally and, and I would just remember my own, I remember my remember and recall my own experience that that made a big difference in the way my, I recovered. Now, consequently, uh, there were times, and fortunately not many times, when I would, you know, uh, come upon patients and and they didn't really seem to have a passion about anything, not not really having a purpose. To, you know, for whatever reason, unfortunately, they may not have family or they were sort of on on their own or by themselves. They they didn't really have a job they were passionate about, didn't really have a cause. And even though their illness or sickness was something that was, I wouldn't say relatively benign, but certainly something that was not uh, life threatening. Uh, their outcomes would not necessarily be so good, even though they were given just as good, if not better care than anybody else. And and I, I started to make this connection, at least in my mind, that when someone has something that they're passionate about, that they're living for, if they have a purpose, uh, they they'll ultimately do a lot better, uh, no matter what healthcare challenge that they're facing. Uh, and and I've just found that to be you know universally, uh, consistently, and uh, and powerfully true uh, throughout my career. So that's the mind body connection that I, I speak of, and um, and and I do believe that you know there is something to a positive mental attitude, even though your physical state may not be uh, you know uh, in in top form. You know, there's a there's an old saying I think I came across, and and there's been iterations of it where it says a uh, a, a sad soul will kill you faster than a germ. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's amazing because as you were talking, I had to look this up because it's been a while, but I remember vividly in high school, I don't know if you've read A Man's Search for Meaning by Victor. Oh, Frank. absolutely. And, it was one of my favorite books. Yes. Right. So I was like, while we're talking, I went on my phone and Googled it. And yeah, I, was, I remember the name Search for Meaning, but I don't remember the full name. And I do remember Victor Frankel. And so for the audience that's not initiated with that, um, Frankel was a, a prisoner in a Nazi concentration camp and again very similarly noticed who survived and who didn't and the ones that had a sense of meaning or a sense of purpose I'm paraphrasing you have to go read the book but the ones that had a sense of purpose did much better and I think this is of all the people I've talked to and the thousands of doctors I've talked to over the years it's the first time I remember somebody I'm sure people have brought this up to me before but that you know talked about this sort of thing with me about that mental attitude of being more than just positive mental attitude but really it's life and death positive mental attitude. So I just think that's really interesting. And I didn't, I read that in your, um, in the book, but the, you know, the color commentary just brought that to life for me. So thank you. That's really an interesting insight. Um, and tying it back to a book I read many years ago. I think it was yeah. Really well, well, uh, yeah. Making that connection is, is really neat because, uh, Victor Frankel is, is definitely one of my most favorite authors in that book, uh, is one of my all time favorites. Yeah, for sure. All right, so let's um, let's talk about. So this wasn't just a feel-good book. You had a lot of practical tips. And again, I you know we work with healthcare professionals every day and uh, at all kinds of different levels. And everybody feels stressed, particularly now, right? Um, and so it's easy. Okay, got it. Be nice. Smile once in a while. Nod. You know, pay attention. Great. Got it. Next the next patient. Well, there's more to it than that. And so I liked your learn model. And maybe you could give us, um, you know, a quick overview or not quick, spend as much time as you like, but explaining learn and what that means and how, you know, practitioners can use that in the real world. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, I, let me let me give a little bit of context to, to the learn model and I definitely will highlight for the audience what that means. 
uh, as I mentioned, you know, many of my experience in life have colored my outlook and my perspective on things. Uh, certainly my military experience uh, has, has done so. And uh, I remember when I was deployed, I had one of uh, uh, the Marine colonels uh, share with our, our, our team uh, something. And it was very interesting. He said, you know, uh, the Marines, because I was deployed with the Marines, and, and they are very unique and and uh, and a, and, a, and a great uh, great uh, force to to be reckoned with. And he said, you know, the Marines do three things: we move, we shoot, and we communicate. And he says, no one in the world or no one on the planet does the first two things better than the United States Marine: move and shoot. He said, the communicate though, sometimes uh, we have a little bit of a problem with that. And he said. When you do have a problem with communication, it's the one thing when done in po- when done poorly or none uh, or not done well can lead to the most problems. He says that that could be true in life, it could be true in your professional uh, relations, uh, and it can be true in in our unit. And and he was trying to highlight a point of, of a communication breakdown that led to led to some challenges that we had. And and I I remember that, and and I thought to myself, wow, you know that has an absolutely direct correlation to healthcare. You know, I thought to myself about how important it was to have the uh, empathy and to give the space to patients to let them tell their story. And, and you know, I started to do some work with a number of my colleagues and you talk about a patient experience. You know, there's studies that are done on uh, on patient and physician and uh, healthcare professionals and patients' interactions. And not surprisingly, uh, and, and I certainly realize this in my own practice and even my own experience dealing with, with healthcare professionals on the patient side, that most patients are interrupted by their healthcare professionals within the first uh, 16 to 20 seconds of the conversation or the engagement. Now think about that, 20 seconds. That means you never have an opportunity to to share your story and and to, you know, actually tell the individual that's there that's supposed to be there to to help take care of your problem or address your concerns why you're there. And, you know, without giving that time and that space, it really, you know, leads to a lot of problems. And let me highlight practically what I mean by that. Most patients, when they go see their physician, they're very, very anxious. At least I am, and I'm a physician. I know about things. You know, you're, you're concerned. You don't, you don't know what's going on. You're trying to get some answers. And the healthcare professional, and, and it may not even be the doctor yet. It could just be the person that's just doing the initial assessment says, so what brings you in today, Mr. Smith, Mr. Mr. Johnson? Well, I was, and then immediately... Within 20 seconds, you're going to get interrupted with a question or qualifier. Now, that takes you off your train of thought, and you may start answering questions, sort of fulfilling another person's agenda without really conveying why you were there. And then they get a a preconceived notion of why you're there and uh, start addressing things that may or may not be relevant or paramount concern to you. And that becomes a problem. So this LEARN model is... A framework for not only giving you a mnemonic to remember what you should do for your patients, which is learn about them, but gives you a prompt to remember what it is that you need to do. So when I say learn, and I highlight in a book, a practical toolkit, if you will, of how you can communicate with your patients, the first L in learn is 
to listen to your patients. And listening is, is a, a very important part of communication. You know, people think that communication is all about talking and expressing yourself. I, I would argue that it's not. You know, I like to tell my medical students and, and my colleagues and certainly my junior residents and faculty all the time, you know, we are given two ears and one mouth. That means we should always be listening twice as much as we're talking. <laughs> so listening is very important because when you listen, you start to learn about your patient. Therein, therein goes to learn again. Um, so that's the L for learn. E is to empathize. And empathizing with your patient is very important as well. Now, much easier to empathize with a patient if you yourself have been a patient. It's uncanny to me how many of my colleagues and physicians, nurses, uh, or even any allied health professional will tell me how much more empathy they have for patients when they themselves have been a patient. And I mean a real patient, like, you know, with the gown and the hospitalization and nothing to eat and uh, all the tests and things and tubes in your body. When you're, when you're in that position, that vulnerable state, you, you start to realize, wow, this is, not a, this is not a good place to be. So having empathy is really important. The A is for affinitize. It's a bit of a word that I sort of uh, you know, coined from affinity. But what I mean by that is many of my patients will come to me from all different walks of life and backgrounds. Uh, you know, and what interests one patient may not interest another patient and how you convey uh, a therapy or a treatment or a change of behavior, suggest a change in behavior, would be vastly different from individual to, to another individual. So. It's only after listening to a patient, empathizing them, empathizing with them and understanding where they are in, in sort of their world that you can start to now tailor your, your treatment, your advice or your therapy to you know, meet them where they are. Um, so that's the affinitized part. The R is for repeat because it's very important to repeat things. Uh, you know, repetition is the, is the mother of success. And so I think repeating things, uh, and it may be even on that same visit or in all subsequent visits is very important. And then the N is just simply to know the patients now. And what I mean by that is uh, lots of our patients come to us and they may have chronic illnesses like diabetes or hypertension, and you may falsely assume that they're there to just address that issue. And so you come in and, you know, you have a lot of preconceived uh, thoughts about why the person there with diabetes and hypertension is sitting in front of you. And in my case, in surgery, they come to me with a surgical condition and I just assume that's, that's just why they're there. Uh, but only after listening to them and empathizing with them that I recognize that they're now, the reason why they're there in front of me right now could be vastly different and sometimes has nothing to do with their condition or their illness. Often it's with a behavioral or, uh, or anxious or anxiety concern that they have regarding something unrelated to their you know, primary conditions that are, that are sort of documented so, so vividly in the chart. So I try and give the space to my patients as much as I can to understand and glean from them these things. And the LEARN framework for me is one of these ways that I remember to sort of include all of these elements in my communication with the patient so that I do that right and so I, I don't have any problems or at least minimize the problems. You know, it's what I liked about the book. You did have some great anecdotes in there. And it's, you know, again, having worked with so many doctors, a lot of times it's like just being able to keep up with my grandkids, right? Or I think you mentioned bowling um, in, in one of the anecdotes there. And so understanding their why, why do they care it's not the healthcare part of it it's the so they can do things they enjoy 
I think is really motivating. And going back to our Viktor Frankl discussion a minute ago, um, understanding the meaning of why we're doing this might give them some more motivation, which is clearly a good thing. Um, I have a one also that I thought was really interesting, the three Ps. Can you talk about those a little? I thought that was really intriguing as well. Right, sure. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, a little context to the three Ps. So what you're talking about, and, and for those that, uh, that, that hopefully will read the book, uh, you'll, come to, you'll come to see these three Ps. And the three Ps are purpose, personalization, and partnerships. And, and that is really uh, the, th- those are the three pillars of the art of human care. Uh, so oftentimes I'll have people say, well, what is the art of human care? What does that mean? Or, you know, how do you apply the art of human care? Well, how do you execute the art, the art of human care? What do you mean by that? Now, as you know, because you read the book, there's, there's a lot of what I think goes into the art of human care, certainly. Uh, however, I also have had uh, the great opportunity to uh, had, have had a lot of schooling. And and as, as Mark Twain said famously, I never let my... Uh, my my schooling interfere with my education, <laughs> so right. so even though even though I, I've 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 uh, I've been to medical school, I've got three different masters from some pretty uh, important uh, universities. Uh, I always felt that where my education was coming from was not necessarily the institutions and sort of the ivory towers there, but it was from the practical conversations that I had with my professors and with my colleagues and more importantly to my fellow students that's really where I learned a lot from uh, but one one uh, one thing that did uh, that did come to uh, mind and and I've seen this as a, as a constant theme uh, along uh, among the ages is that uh, it's very easy to take something that's complicated like human care or health care or medicine and make it more complicated. You know, anybody can do that. I can tell you, oh yeah, let me tell you about, you know, this little gizmo here and I'll start talking technical and and making it uh, very, uh, you know, uh, making it more complicated than it has to be. And that doesn't take any kind of genius at all. But what true genius is, is taking something that's complicated and distilling it down to some elements that make it easy to remember, easy to recall, but more importantly, convey some meaning to the person. And so that's what I tried to do with the art of human care and distilling it down to these three principles of purpose, personalization, and partnerships. And I and I uh, argue within the book and I highlight and outline how these three elements of purpose, personalization, and partnerships when applied uh, very deliberately can actually impact and not only an individual life, but actually fundamentally change the world. So again, you know, we talked a lot about the purpose. You know, I experienced my purpose as I was recovering from my my uh, bacterial meningitis illness. And I experienced how purpose and having a passion for, for life and for living for something fundamentally impacts the outcome of the patients that I care for. But I also recognize that purpose is something that's hard to articulate. And so in the book, I convey and I... And I, and I uh, I propose, if you will, that one finds their purpose by doing something, and typically by doing something for others, uh, just like you're doing right now. You have this platform uh, where people are listening, and in many ways, you're helping them by connecting them with uh, information that will be both useful and practical and, and something that will be inspirational, ideally, to help them change their lives. And, and you're, you're, you're living your purpose by, by what you're doing. And, and many people do that, whether you're a teacher, you're, you're an architect, you're an engineer, 
you're you're doing something gives you the purpose and i think that's that's a really important thing and so finding someone's purpose and helping them connect to their purpose i think is very is very foundational to the art of human care whether that's discovering it you discovering it for you as an individual or you know conveying that with someone that you're interacting with personalization is very important because there, as you know in the book there are many stories and i convey how important it is to personalize the care that you deliver to each individual because we're very different and uh, each individual has different needs and requirements desires passions dreams and frustrations and so personalizing your care and the uh, sort of uh, way that you engage with individuals is very important and then you know sort of to round it all out I think the other element of the art of human care comes from partnerships because nothing great has ever been accomplished uh, by one individual. I mean, even when you think of the titans of businesses and companies, yes, we like to celebrate the one individual solo person, but invariably that success is almost always uh, made possible by the work of many people contributing uh, to that individual's success. So that there's a collective success. And the same is true in healthcare. When I had my uh, experience as a uh, as an undergrad, I knew that it, it was more than just that doctor that that you know rallied to make me better. It took nurses. I had to have physical therapy. I had to have an audiologist work with me because I had some partial hearing loss at one point. So there was a great number of people that rallied around me in a partnership to help me get better. Not to mention my friends and family and loved ones and professors and all the folks that were concerned about me. So partnership is very important. Uh, and so in the same way, when you talk about like, how do we make care better for individuals or for society, it's gonna take way more than just doctors. I don't care if you're the best surgeon in the world, you, you by yourself can't you know, evoke the kind of uh, systems and uh, the infrastructure and all of the things that are required to really deliver health to an individual. And that's really what we, I think, are all really after. It's not, you know, sick care. It's really uh, trying to develop and build a system uh, and a societal sort of uh, framework and support system that provides you with all of the tools that you can uh, utilize to achieve and maintain and thrive uh, in, a, in a healthy way in a state. So long, long, long answer. But, uh... <laughs> but it's important. And one of the things you mentioned, I'm not going to ask you to do the whole story here, but uh, Mrs. E.V., you followed uh, the purpose and uh, got kind of a benefit from that. Do you want to share that with our listeners? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's a that's a neat story. So I, I kind of start off by telling about one of the the uh, first experiences I had as a young surgical intern. And uh, my purpose at that time was to be the best surgical resident that I could be. And in that case, at that time, I was an intern. And I, I would follow the example of my uh, surgical chief, who was at the time uh, the chairman of surgery at the department uh, that I was working in. And I was his personal intern. And he set this very high bar and standard for what surgical excellence was all about. And one of the things that he conveyed and he insisted and demanded was that you took really good care of his patients. And, and by extension, his patients became my patients. And so there was this one woman who I went, uh, you know, sort of uh, 
over and above and beyond in the call of duty to ensure that she was uh, always well taken care of. She was, you know, very sick woman. She had lots of uh, different medical problems. And what we were uh, helping her with uh, at that particular time when I was taking care of her and had the honor to, to, to participate in the surgery was to help uh, remove uh, some uh, masses that she had in her neck that were causing her her, thigh, her parathyroid gland to be uh, overacting, overreacting, if you will, and, and was leading to lots of different health problems. So anyway, well, we did the surgery, and like I said, I you know made it my my point to you know be at her beck and call and to make sure that she was getting everything she wanted. Uh, you know, if she wanted a muffin, I said, did you want that toasted and with butter? You know, if she if she had pain, I wanted to make sure the pain would go away, and. And it was, you know, it, it began as part to try and, you know, of course, follow the model and the example of my of my surgical uh, uh, chief. But I realized very quickly that his model and his example was how you should treat everybody that you engage with and all your patients. But in her case, uh, she was my first one. And so I really wanted to make a, a difference. Well, it turns out she did well, and she uh, wind up uh, eventually uh, getting better and recovering and, and uh, being discharged from the hospital. And uh, I later found out that uh, while she was at the uh, hospital, she had a daughter, and her daughter had a very good friend uh, who was a nurse. And uh, in conversation, uh, she, she mentioned to her daughter's friend, uh, you know, there was this young surgeon that took really, really good care of me. He was like one of the best doctors I've ever had. Now, it's it's fair to say that maybe if I wasn't such a good doctor and, and I wasn't trying my best to not only impress my patient, but my surgical chief, I may never have had this, uh, this connection made. But the connection was her daughter's friend uh, turned out to be also a nurse and said, uh, by, uh, by recommendation of my patient, uh, that, you know, she should seek me out. And, uh, and so there was a little bit of matchmaking made, uh, but I'm proud to say that that woman that uh, she connected me to and that we, uh, we, we, we sort of uh, uh, made, made, that, uh, made that connection because of this great care uh, became not only my wife, but my love of my lifetime and the, the mother to my son and my daughter. <laughs> So, so when you get together you at dinner parties, you win that story, right? That's one of my favorite conversation starters. Like, how did you guys meet? My wife and I have a good one too. Um, so, but it's like, when you have a good one, it's like, I won. <laughs> so that's great. Good story. I love it. Uh, a couple more questions before we wrap up. Um, Cause they're, uh, these are all pressing to me. Uh, one was, you know, the connection with art, we talked about the human connection and we talked about your daughter's art, but why art? Like, where do you feel the art is in medicine and your book specifically, but you know, everybody in, uh, there's the right brain, left brain thing. And just as a funny aside, years ago, um, I sought out a famous art instructor because at the time I was working with a fair number of large dental groups and uh, plastic surgery groups. And it's funny because they were clinicians and they're, you know, changing people's noses or smile, but they had no sort of art sense. They were, they <laughs> had, didn't have that sort of right brain. And that matters a lot, right? A sense of proportion sure. and how things all Absolutely. fit together. And yeah. so um, this famous art author, I tried to get her to go on the tour with me doing talks for dentists and plastic surgeons. It didn't turn out though. She was great. But I think <laughs> art is a, you know, not just on the cosmetics, but art, there's art to medicine as well. And so 
just briefly, you know, you talked about art and the whole book is about art in some way. What, what connection do you see with art and medicine, particularly as you're a transplant surgeon? Sure, sure. Well, let me let me answer that in, in two ways. I'll answer it personally and then I'll answer it sort of, uh, you know, more generally and, and maybe a little bit more in, in the context of the book. So personally, uh, believe it or not, before I, I wanted to become a doctor, I, I also at one point entertained uh, becoming an artist. And in fact, I thought I was pretty good at art. And I just always had an, uh, an interest in art. I, I used to color and, and draw just like any child did. But I, I took it to the next level as I became a teenager. And at the time, I grew up in, in a small village town in New York called Brooklyn. And during my childhood, uh, graffiti art was a was a big uh, sort of medium back then. And I, you know, I would hang out with these graffiti artists, and I would learn the style and the technique. And it was something that I was really enamored with. And I actually applied to art and design high school, and it got accepted. I had a portfolio, and I had to take a test to uh, do some still drawings and and live drawings. And it was a uh, you know great honor for me. I was pretty excited and, and psyched. I wanted to go to art and design high school because uh, one of my best friends at the time was going there and it was a school in Manhattan which mean I which meant I would have to take the train which is a big deal back then and uh, and so when I brought the uh, the acceptance to this art school to my my father who at the time had to uh, certify my <laughs> certify my acceptance by giving his consent for me to go he he promptly said you know as uh, so let me give a little context my parents were uh, west african immigrants and so with many immigrant parents uh, as you can imagine first especially first generation as i was uh, going to art school is not necessarily uh, you know top of the list you know right. many immigrant <laughs> many immigrant parents have have like this saying that you know your 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 son or your daughter is either a, a doctor or a lawyer or a failure <laughs> so, <laughs> so so you know the, the seeds for medicine were definitely planted there but uh, you know here I was trying to get into art school and my dad quickly said uh, no you're not going to art school because you'll never make a living as an artist so. So there is that personal connection with art that I've always um, sort of held steadfast to. And when I recognized that my daughter had both an interest and I think uh, a, a sort of aptitude to art, I wanted to nurture that. And, you know, even if she has to be on the payroll for the rest of her life, I, I really want to make sure I nurture and support that interest. Uh, but that's uh, the personal part. And, and within the book, I weave in, you know, a lot more personal anecdote about, you know, how powerful art has been in my life uh, and why it resonates with me, uh, even today as a surgeon, because it really does take some creativity. And, and you, you said it well in your work with uh, plastic surgeons and with cosmetic dentists and even dentists. Uh, there is a lot of creativity that, that's necessary to uh, sort of do your craft, if you will. And surgery for me is one of these ways where you, know, you can mix the creative art and the energy of, of expression uh, with something that is scientifically based and rooted. Now, uh, from a more generic standpoint, there is absolutely a healing effect of art, I think, in when it comes to health. You know, we, we talk about the healing arts, and if anyone's been depressed or sad or blue and they, hear, they heard their favorite song or they hear their favorite song, it, it could take them back into a place and a state of mind that, that brings them joy and a smile, brings a smile to their face. Conversely, you could be in the greatest mood in the world and hear something or see something that just evokes sadness and, and gives you melancholy because of the power of, of the way art 
uh, can convey a message and connect with us. And it's at, at its very root, you know, if you if you were to look up the definition of what art is, it, it's really a form of an expression of communication. And if you think about the human's first existence, we ex we expressed ourselves and communicated with art and through art. And so I think art is is something that is absolutely fundamental to uh, the human experience and and so how could you not include it when he, when you're talking about uh care and and becoming healthy i think it's something that that's just a an element that's just naturally uh you know interwoven and and part of our our reality in life and and there's no one that that's that, that can't be impacted or touched by art and and its various forms music uh sculpture uh and, and expressive arts uh so i think you know, there's a very uh, important healing attribute to art, and that's what I try and convey in the book, not only through the words and through the stories, but also through the actual art that's in the book. Uh, two more questions, and then we'll be wrapped up here. The last, the second to last is, uh, I presume you did most of the writing, maybe all the writing for the book prior to COVID, right? And so we're in a different environment if that's the case. And I'm wondering if there's any ironies, some things that, wow, they were important then, that you really feel like caregivers, leaders, you know, public should know with the new context of COVID? Wow, well, that's a great question. So, so absolutely, 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 yes. <laughs> there, there, there are many, many uh, ironic uh, parallels uh, because I think that everything that I wrote about in a book, <clears throat> the message of human care, the, the, the elements and the sort of pillars of purpose personalization partnerships they're ever more important now in the time of a pandemic and in fact if if we don't if if we need nothing else right now the thing that we do need is is human care you know probably more than we ever did before now the irony is i started out this year uh 2020 like many people did with 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 great aspirations for making this be a very you know big year we're entering a new decade uh, you know, I had all the goals and the objectives down and it was January and February and I was also, uh, you know, had a very big plan for how I was going to uh, get the word out about the book because the book had just been published at the you know end of 2019 and I was going into 2020 with all this momentum. I had uh, many bookings for readings. I had uh, uh, invitations to come give uh, lectures at medical schools and we were we had these plans for you know, sort of sharing this message with all of these uh, graduating students and, and their various uh, healthcare sort of tracks. And then what happened was COVID. And like many people, I, I also retreated into the recluse of isolation and, and hunkering down. Uh, and it was, it was, uh, it took a while, like I think with many people to start realizing that, you know, we still have to live, you know, even with a pandemic. And having been a, a student of many pandemics, I realized that Pandemics have been around uh, with us since the dawn of human existence, and every 80 to 100 years or so, there's there's usually a really big one that 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 uh, is of great consequence, and it changes society fundamentally, uh, politically, economically, socially, and sometimes advances and sometimes uh, pulls us back technologically. I, I think in this case, uh, we certainly have seen how impactful politically. COVID has been. We've, we've recognized the impact that it has had to our economics. It's socially changed the way that we live. You know, people talk about we're going back to normal someday. Well, if you really think about 
the way pandemics have shaped humankind and societies, there is never again a going back to normal. We have, we have and we will be resetting what we now call the social norm moving forward. It's already been reset. It's never going to be the way it was on March 10th, 2020 for anyone in the world, pretty much. <laughs> it's just not going to be that way. It's going to be different. Uh, and technologically, I mean, what we're doing right now has been accelerated uh, and it's being used more more widespread than ever before because we're not able to socialize at least like we did before. So I recognize that all of these things were happening, but at the same time, there was still this great need and probably more so than ever because I've seen and taken care of COVID patients. I've had personal loss in my own family of patients that have people that have died uh, from COVID that now more than ever, we need human care. You know, each one of us needs to find a purpose. We need to help others find their purpose. We need to personalize the care that, that, that so many are, uh, are in need of right now because, uh, so many people are suffering, you know, uh, whether they're suffering physically from COVID or as collateral damage from COVID, uh, there's still so many challenges. Uh, society is is really in need of uh, something uh, that can help, and uh, and I believe that the art of human care is a technology that could uh, that can bring a, a lot of relief and a lot of uh, a lot of uh, ease to a lot of pain and be a great benefit to many. You know, it's funny. One of the things we've talked about in the past on webinars and podcasts and different things I've done, you know, healthcare, for all the change that happens technologically, right? And I, we work a lot with oncology and things are changing daily there, right? It's impossible for people on the ground to keep up with all the different things that are going on uh, in oncology. But, you know, as a whole, healthcare is not famous for being a fast mover, right? There's a lot right. of interest in the status quo. And the one thing that COVID did in this case um, is you know telemedicine where uh, there was a whole bunch of uh, you know, telemedicine's been around for a while in various forms. It's not new, uh, but it took you know within weeks hospital systems were doing um, telemedicine at scale when it was impossible to get anybody to agree to even try it. You know two weeks before, right. so right. it's amazing when you think about okay reimbursement solved, HIPAA solved, solved <clears throat> maybe both in both cases right maybe not totally solved, but solved enough. And then all the excuses of like, well, I don't really feel comfortable with it or patients won't like it or I don't have time just melted away. And so that's been cataclysmic and that'll change the way healthcare is delivered. And, you know, as a transplant surgeon, it'll be interesting to see as, you know, as things evolve, you know, for follow-up care, do you, they have to really come back in or can you do telemedicine or you know, what area, in most areas of healthcare, there's probably a role. So I think it's, that's just one example that comes to mind of, because I've talked to these people for years, right? Have you thought about, right. you know, just getting people to be one to like allow patients to put their own calendar or schedule their own uh, appointment or to email uh, securely their doctor. You know, the patients wanted it, but the doctor's like, no, 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 I don't want to do that. And now it's the boom, it's just changing. Last, last question, I guess, is um, the, uh, you know, so I think you gave me a perfect setup here. So what's your call to action, right? So what do you want our listeners to do? Because remember, we have people in healthcare, some people are pretty influential in healthcare, others are, you know, on the front lines and others are just trying to do their job to support it. But, you know, how, um, you know, how can our listeners and your broader readership, what can they do? Well, first of all, they should read the book. 
<laughs> I agree. And by the way, I'll have a link to link to buy the book in the podcast just so you know. So I will do that. Well, I, I'm not. I, I I have a. I, you know, I don't have a a, a sort of agenda for for that uh, call to action. But I believe it has the instructions and and does give a blueprint and a good model for how to approach. You know the times that we're living in right now in the midst of COVID, but more importantly, how we can work together collectively. And I think especially because of the the background, the nature, and the experiences of your audience. Uh, how we could work collectively to bring health to many, and in in all in all in all its different ways that you can do that. And again, I I I, I admonish that you don't have to be a healthcare professional uh, to be responsible or be actually critical in helping people achieve health. That's really what we want. So that again is sort of the the call to action uh, to the art of that. Uh, let's not focus on. Healthcare. Let's focus on achieving health, and and health is a lot different than than healthcare. And and I would also, you know, give this uh, pearl, which I, I outline in the book, and that is, you know, one does not have to cure in order to heal. And let me say that again: one does not have to cure in order to heal. Uh, you know, there are many of us that are walking around with uh, conditions. Uh, sometimes uh, terminal conditions that will never uh, be cured per se because we just don't have cures for them. But there's a great number of things that we can do for those individuals to help them heal. Uh, And that could be uh, sharing some art with them, uh, taking the time to listen to them, taking the time to empathize with them, taking the time to understand what their now is, what their needs are, uh, trying to find out how you can help them discover a purpose at a time of such great uncertainty, uh, help them to personalize uh, how they approach you know, their work and partner with them so that you can work toward you know, restoring health if that's possible, uh, making health better when, 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 when possible, uh, and also uh, you know, impacting the world in that way. Because like I said, I go back to my story of the doctor. Uh, I remember that day vividly. He didn't do much, you know, arguably he did a lot for me, more for me medically, but I don't remember any of that. But what I do remember is him taking the time to care about uh, learning about something that was important to me, coming to share that, that moment with me, have that connection with me, and then give me a little bit of inspiration. Uh, and, and didn't cost him anything to do that, but it made such a difference for me. Uh, and I try to, you know, hopefully repeat those little experiences with the patients that I engage with on a daily basis. And and perhaps for me, because of my work in transplant, where there's this uh, always stark contrast between life and death, I'm always reminded about how short life is. And so I'll end with this, uh, Stuart, that, you know, the call to action is uh, don't dilly dally. Life is short. <laughs> Go out and make a difference. Fantastic. That's a great ending. Well, hey, I appreciate you being on our podcast. Um, you know, I'd love to uh, help you get the message out. I told you this is part of something I just do. It's not, you don't make our revenue in this sort of thing. But I, whenever I hear somebody that I think is interesting that can help improve healthcare, it's my pleasure um, to invite them and take advantage of our little channel we've created here. So um, good luck with this. And um, please keep in touch and feel free to come back anytime you want to talk about this stuff again, personally or as a podcast. Uh, I've enjoyed this and it's been fun. So thank you. 
Oh, thank you.